Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. The New Statesman. Hi, I'm Anoush. I'm Rachel. And I'm Freddie. And on today's episode of the New Statesman podcast, we compare Rishi Sunak and Keir Starmer's speeches. And you ask us, is the government letting the NHS collapse on purpose? So we've been rewarded with a New Year treat this year, two back-to-back speeches from our great leaders, uh, Rishi Sunak and Keir Starmer, trying to lay out their priorities. And it felt like the starting pistol of a long, long election campaign, I thought. So let's start with the Prime Minister's first. Maybe we can do a little comparison of the two speeches at the end. The speech was, first of all, it was trailed with a policy. And I'm saying policy with inverted commas. I know our listeners can't see me, but I'm doing quote marks in the air. It was for compulsory maths up until the age of 18. And the reason I put it in quote marks is... these things really frustrate me because it's not a real policy, really, is it, is it? Until it's until there's a plan for plugging the chronic shortage of maths teachers that we have in this country, capacity in sixth form colleges, etc. And it depressed me because it reminded me a little bit of the Boris Johnson era when they used to just announce things that would never actually happen. I don't know if you remember that summer where they announced that people who had been convicted of antisocial behaviour would be made to wear high-vis vests and be put into chain gangs. Yeah, the police speech. Yeah, Yeah. and that really riled up the commentariat. But it just was never going to happen. Antisocial behaviour isn't policed in this country. And obviously Sunak's aim, I think, is more laudable than that. But it was a similar technique, wasn't it, to try and suggest a tone about your premiership without actually having any plans to do this. He's got this sort of head boyish persona. He's known as a numbers guy. So his vision he wants to bring across through an announcement like that is for a sort of nerdier Britain that's ready to innovate. So that kind of depressed me. But then actually, when you got to the substance of the speech, the five pledges, it was almost the opposite. It was it was not ambitious. Freddie, what do you think of that? Yeah, I think he was basically trying to schematise the normal duties of government into a five-point plan, which is quite wise because he's going to be doing those things anyway and it'd be great for the government if they could get a little bit of political capital from doing those things. The only problem is it's not very ambitious. It doesn't go beyond what people would expect him to do anyway. And therefore, he's still got the original problem of not having a vision to sell to the country. Yeah. Yeah, he said no tricks, no ambiguity. We'll either have delivered these or we won't have, which (laughs) makes it sound like he's providing the electorate with the tools to hold him to account. But if you go through those pledges, so halving inflation is something that the Bank of England have already forecast is going to happen this year. 
anyway. Growing the economy, he didn't say by how much. So if the economy grows by 0.01%, then still that's technically... In one quarter, any time. At until, any point, that's still technically yeah. a win. So that's a really low bar. Getting national debt falling, he didn't lay out a timescale for that. And actually, in the autumn, Jeremy Hunt's changed the timescale of that anyway to the medium term, so five years. So not before the next election anyway. Bringing down NHS waiting lists, well there are lots of ways of measuring that but basically there are 7 million people on them at the moment so if you get down to 6.5 million again that's still technically a win. And also it depends on what you mean by waiting list. Exactly. Because the NHS has already eliminated the two year and beyond waiting list last summer and it's 60% through the 18 months waiting list so if he bases it on the 18 month waiting list then he's quite likely to achieve that. It's very tricksy isn't it? Yeah. And then the last one was introduce legislation to make make it harder for people to come across in small boats or make it easier for the government to send them away. A couple of things on that. Firstly, you can introduce legislation. It won't actually reduce the number of crossings. And I think people are probably more interested in bringing down the number of crossings than they are in the legislation. And also, as we've discussed on this podcast before, the reason illegal crossings are so high is because there are no legal routes for the vast majority of asylum seekers and he knows that and his Home Secretary knows that and everyone knows that. So there were five pledges that on the surface sound really clear and really ambitious but are actually taking credit for stuff that's basically already going to happen or for things that might happen in the future where you don't set a timescale so no one can hold you to it. So in terms of no tricks, no ambiguity, it was really the opposite. Yeah, I mean, there was a really brutal line in our new colleague Zoe Grunewald's piece on this speech, which was, since he promised very little, we should expect little delivery, which I thought was quite a pithy way of summing it up. However, there is something of substance here because he said it himself explicitly. He's reflecting the priorities of the British public. Those are policy areas that people do really care about. And More is, than maths. Yeah. <laughs> and is there a benefit in him showing that he's listening to what people are concerned about? Completely. And Rachel's right, much more than maths. It was very strange that they trailed on the maths policy because no one's really concerned about that. I wrote in Morning Call, I think, two days ago that when Tony Blair had his education, 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 shouldn't forget the last <laughs> Don't one. Forget the third um, one policy back in the late 90s and early noughties, people's prioritisation of education was about 30-40%, whereas now it's about 10%. It's not the top of people's list of priorities, uh, whereas the boats, the NHS, the economy, inflation, these things are. It's just that because they're so important to people, if you don't deliver on those and you make the promises that you are going to do something about it, then people are going to punish you for that. I mean, he may be have very vague uh, targets and very vague aims for what he wants to achieve in relation to those areas but he is highlighting them and people are already engaged with them and if they don't see real change in their lives then they're going to blame the government regardless if we get 0.01% even if technically that will make him correct so as you say Rachel I think he's set up to fail on this one Yeah, and on the speech like past the five priorities but before the maths it was really weird. I wrote down children's TV presenter on Prozac. The delivery, the smiling, and we're going to innovate and grow the economy. But also the actual substance of it wasn't there. I've written down real change isn't provided, it's created. What does that mean? He mentioned the family. He definitely like, wrote that himself. You know, not these things, <laughs> these things are written by other people. He wrote that bit himself. I think the whole thing was written by chat GPT or the AI tool, sort of insert prime ministerial speech here. But it went from antisocial behaviour, bringing down crime, growing the economy, innovate, family, 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 obviously not going to mention childcare because he's just scrapped all the childcare reforms. But, you know, we want a good education and social justice. And you're like, this could be 
any politician of any party at virtually any time in the last couple of decades or possibly ever. No one's going to stand up there and say, no, we don't want innovative development and we don't want the economy to be better and we don't want better education or, or lower crime. So it was a sort of vision that was so vague and so obvious and so lacking any detail other than let's make people do maths until the age of 18. It felt like he had space to fill and just had to insert some prime ministerial words in here. Maybe I'm being unfair. It's not like I have any policies well, for him. It's, it's funny that you said children's TV presenter because I was going to say in Harry Lambert, our colleague's absence and I think he once put it like this, he comes across sometimes as like a Blue Peter presenter yes. a bit yes. in his presentation yeah. and actually we'll move on to Starmer Here's an economic next, proposal I made earlier. Yeah, you compare that kind of delivery with, okay, Starmer did a speech the following day, he had his shirt sleeves rolled up some heavy machinery behind him, he was doing that thing that we identified in his conference speech last year where he's like leaning into the lectern and kind of looking like he's ready to get stuck in again I'm doing gestures here but our listeners can't see me so this Anish is just, just looking the benefit of prime our ministerial. producer and Freddie and Rachel sorry guys I mean on the mass policy one curious thing I thought was that it completely contradicted his May's lecture speech from last year this was or this year actually this was what his key economic speech when he was chancellor and he set out his key ideas for what he thinks brings about economic growth and the key thing in terms of innovation was adult skills he said we can no longer ago further with secondary education and school education we now need to look to adult skills only to completely contradict Mm. that when he becomes prime minister so it it didn't cohere in his own terms even then yeah i do think this kind of announcement and this is going to sound a bit savage but it's the kind of announcement seems like it's invented to preoccupy the egos of twitter and Mm. sound fairly blah to the casual observer okay that sounds like quite a good goal shrug it's not a cones hotline (laughs) but I think it's in that kind of space of say something that isn't that controversial because most people believe that we probably would do better as a nation if we were all a bit better at maths but as you say it's never going to happen he himself acknowledged it couldn't happen in this parliament anyway so what's he doing setting it out I think it was all a bit rushed I think they might have seen Labour were doing a speech and they thought they need to do one as well and Richard Tice of course do not forget yes actually let's have Richard Tice as our segue into Keir Starmer because you actually took one for the team and watched Richard Tyson. I did and sat down with him yesterday. It was interesting actually because you've got to look at the Reform Party's purpose in politics. Uh, what makes them important? Often it's to steal uh, seats and votes from the two main parties and also maybe strike a deal here or have a certain arrangement with the governing party as the Brexit Party did with the Conservatives in 2019. Yeah. But one of the main attractions of the Reform Party over and the precursors, UK Brexit and others, is that they addressed or spoke to people's cultural conservatism whereas Tice is basically an economic libertarian yeah. he, he spent his whole speech talking about making work pay okay that sounds like you're going somewhere but then his key policy and the thing main thing they were talking about was personal allowance and income tax thresholds which is fine but I'm not sure Reform UK are going to compete with Labour and the Conservatives on tax policy that's not where if you look in the past 10 years where third parties have made much ground so but having said that they have you have to admit gone from three percent to seven percent in about two or three months and i think that speaks to the tories problems and if you map it onto the poll tracker graphs you can clearly see the decline in the tory vote and the rise in the reform party vote but they're not there yet one Reform UK source put it to me that they are talking to Tory MPs about defection, but there's no chance they're going to do that this year. And they would have to at least be on 12 to 15 points for that even to be a consideration. Okay, so whenever we see those stories about Tory MPs 
tempted to defect to Reform UK this year. We know that's just... Well, apparently more, not. More let's of that see. spin. It depends how bad it gets. <laughs> okay, and let's move on to Starmer. And actually, Freddie, I'll come to you first again because you have just come from Starmer's speech in East London. And you heard bits that we didn't. Yeah. Yes, because there was an issue with the sound. The great British public is up in arms. Um, <laughs> what was it like? How did you come across? And what were the kind of key themes of that speech? Um, I thought it was quite good. I think the key line was on Brexit. He's now co-opted the take back control slogan, which if you remember the numerous and quite banal Labour slogans over the past two years, I think we're on 13 now or something similar, take back control surpasses them all. So I think it's quite a, a wise move. What they're actually going to do with that is introduce a take back control bill, which will set the groundwork for the devolution reform. So we had the proposals from Gordon Brown last month and this bill helped implement some of those, even though the reforms are still being consulted on, so they're not finalised yet. But the broader picture of him trying to co-opt the Brexit language and address the fact that he was a big Remainer, I think is positive and also leads on from his conference speech back in October. He was laying the groundwork then for this sort of change in messaging. And I think it also speaks to the fact that given Sunak's preoccupation with merely managing crises this year, it allows the Labour Party to really go and try and take some of the key Tory issues such as Brexit going throughout the year. Yeah, I suppose it's quite clever in a way because when we were talking about Gordon Brown's potential constitutional reforms, there was a bit of chat about how this made the Labour Party look eccentric and out of touch, but actually they were building up to this moment, weren't they, so that they could have their own version of take-back control because always the response to take-back control from the Remain side was take-back control of what, whereas there is actually a what. In and, and give it to whom as well. Yes, yeah. indeed, yeah. Yeah, and so much of the... Brexit debate in the past year or so has been focused on Northern Ireland, it's been focused on trade, it's been focused on veterinary agreements and I do think it, and it's left the debate and focusing on take back control and giving it some meat and also adding a nice little title to your otherwise quite dry constitutional reforms <laughs> yeah. is a wise move. It's really helpful for journalists as well because nobody ever is allowed to put devolution or constitutional reform in a headline. I know. So actually this or is quite piece. clever from Labour and I'm sure I've complained about that too. Labour people in the past. Oh, it's before. your so idea. I'm take the Go on, take the credit for it, Annie. <laughs> Rachel, what did you make of the speech? I think Freddie's right on Brexit. There were two other things that stood out to me. One was right at the start when he was talking about the cost of living crisis. He said something about how he knows how it feels to be struggling and to ha suddenly have essentials and bills that you could pay a couple of months ago become unaffordable and how you feel a sense of shame. I think he actually used the word yeah. shame. And he talked about growing up and their phone being cut off and obviously that was a long time ago and those things are different but I think that is a real contrast in the kind of stories that he can tell compared to Rishi Sunak who is married to a billionaire and is one of the richest or the second richest prime minister that we've ever had and okay he didn't have that wealth as a child but he did go to one of the top private schools, public boarding schools in the country. And there's always a sense when Rishi Sunak talks about understanding the cost of living, you sort of look at him and you go, yeah, but you don't really. You try had to put petrol in somebody else's car in a photo op. Whereas sort of Keir Starmer being able to draw on that personal experience, even though obviously his life is turned out very differently and he's done very well for himself. I thought that was quite powerful and makes it harder for 
Sunak and the Tories to throw that elite, out of touch, liberal lawyer, London kind of thing at him because he does have that family background to speak to. And the other thing that I thought he did quite effectively was draw a connecting line from all of the challenges we're facing now in energy and the NHS and industrial action and everything, the sense that everything is falling apart, all the way through, back through successive Conservative prime ministers, 12 years, 13 years of Conservative government, because what the Tories are trying very hard to do is say, yes, everything is terrible right now, but it's because of the war in Ukraine, it's because of the pandemic, it's sources, factors outside of our control. And Kisdama sort of explicitly said, yes, all this stuff is going on, but there is a reason the UK is particularly badly exposed to these global shocks. And that reason is 13 years of Conservative government priorities, which have taken away a lot of our resilience and talked about not having nuclear capacity and insulation and onshore wind. And obviously, it's a factor in the health service as well. And that's going to be a really powerful line going into the next election that things are broken now, not because of what's happening in Ukraine or with COVID, but specifically because of things the Conservatives have done. Mm. Yeah. And that in the past has been a tricky line for Labour to attempt to draw because it's it's commonly held belief that people vote on the future rather than the past and constantly trying to bring up austerity as Ed Miliband used to do back when he was leader when he was in the thick of the austerity agenda that was really difficult line to, to stick as well I think much to their surprise at the time obviously the economic climate has changed since then and the government does seem really tired and the leadership is less inspiring and perhaps it's a line now that can work and your mentioning of that line that was what also stuck out to me the people who have always kept their head above water now struggling to pay bills that were affordable recently I thought that was a a really clever point not necessarily for his own family background but because that is the demographic that is probably the most important electorally But also, it is what's coming up all the time in focus groups. People saying, I was fine before I considered myself middle class and Mm. I couldn't get my kids the Christmas presents they wanted this year. That's what people are saying. We actually wrote with the data team, my colleague Nick Ferris, a data journalist, a piece about the new squeezed middle. And this is something that they're talking about in Labour circles at the moment, not to resurrect the slogan, which was a bit controversial at the time, but to identify this group of people who, you know, once felt relatively affluent who now feel precarious and it is a big group of people not least because these people are above the threshold where they would get cost of living payments universal credit the kind of extra help that you would get from the state if you were below a a certain level and those are the people actually who are going to be taxed relatively higher than they used to be they're the people that paul johnson at the ifs have suggested are going to get the nastiest shot Mm. I think it's also interesting looking at the two speeches side by side and trying to understand why Starmer was able to make quite a audacious comment on Brexit and Sunak had to uh, stick to what he's already doing and to come up with a mass policy that didn't really make sense the day before or what have you. Uh, I think that you can clearly see why that's happened once you look at the party discipline and also the way that they have a grip on unity within the party. I mean, Sunak is so exposed to his backbenches within Parliament, he doesn't actually have the political capital to pass something dramatic, new, defining over the next year or so. Whereas Starmer now has such a grip on his party, he's able to speak about Brexit in a much freer way. That's no longer an issue that threatens to divide the party as much as it did, where Sunak has to write a speech very quickly and um, what seems to be written very quickly (laughs) and just describe what the minimum of what he has to do because that 
to be honest, is all he can expect to do at the moment. Yeah. Can I say something in defence of both of them, though? Yeah, they we must be fair. Both of them stayed and took lots and lots of journalist questions. I think Rishi Sunak took 15. Yeah. I can't remember how many Keir Starmer took, maybe for any... You can quite, a few. quite a few. Quite and a few. And they were tough questions as well. And I'm not saying they answered them. I mean, most both of them answered these tough questions with the usual, well, let me tell you what we're going to do kind of answers. But they stayed and they took them. And it was only a few months ago where we had... Liz Truss give mm. a, a sort of disastrous non-speech at a, at a conference and then take four questions where she was about to cry for each one and then just run out the room. And I think staying and facing that, whether you give decent answers or not, is a good thing. So well done to both of them for that. Yes. And just one thing before we move on to the next question that we do have to mention is the way that the Labour leader's speech was trailed was with this line that they wouldn't be getting its big government checkbook out. Freddie, can you analyse that a bit for us. Clearly, it speaks to some of the anxieties in the Labour Party about still being seen as a party of sort of economic irresponsibility. Yeah, I think there's two things. There's managing expectations about what the policies are going to be in the manifesto, given the new economic environment Labour finds themselves in. Because, as we always say, oppositions inherit economies and the economic problems that the government faces, Labour will also have to face. And then the second thing is that they're trying to give off a image of fiscal responsibility. This is another example of them going for a key issue for the Tories and saying, forget the Tories on managing the budget of the country, if you want to use that phrase. We are now the people to do that. You saw, again, this was a key theme in Starmer's conference speech, given Liz Truss's disastrous mini-budget. The goal is now open for Labour to claim that mantle, and I think that's what they were trying to do there. Hi, it's Anoush here. This is just a reminder that as a podcast listener, you have the option of subscribing to the New Statesman with a very special offer. You can subscribe for just a pound a week. That's 12 weeks for £12. If you go to newstatesman.com forward slash podcast offer. We'll be right back. If you enjoy the New Statesman podcast, then you'll love our daily politics newsletter, Morning Call. It's a quick, essential guide to the big political story each morning by me, Freddie Hayward and Rachel Wearmouth, featuring original reporting from Westminster and beyond, our analysis of the latest political news and some recommendations of the best reads of the day. Sign up for free at the link in the podcast description. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. And now it's time for a section we like to call You, you Ask Us. us. So our question today is from a listener who did not disclose their name. Is the government letting the NHS fail on purpose in order to one day privatise it? This is a question I get 
quite a lot. I think, Anish, just to introduce this, you have in fact written a yes. piece on exactly that topic. I have. I've written that. Out today, so Thursday. Maybe I should just read out the URL to that page <laughs> and we can all go home. No, yes, it's, a, it's an important question now because there are some people in the health service actually saying it. So I've heard GPs saying it and there are certain doctors who believe this idea as well. And the piece that I wrote, I was asking around about this. And first of all, it's easy to see why people think that the government is ignoring the travails of the NHS. It really truly is in crisis. I know we use that word a lot, but it re- really is at the moment. There's a lot of horrible stories about people who can't get ambulances. And these have been around for a while. Over a year, I've been covering this really. I mean, last November, I spoke to a mother who's two-year-old was having seizures she called 999 there was no ambulance crew available she had to drive her there herself with instructions from them to do CPR on the side of the road if she stopped breathing so I think this is this has been an ongoing bubbling issue that has now come into the fore because of the pressures of the flu and Covid season and also I do think that there are more hospitals closer to London being affected by it than there were before which obviously draws the media's attention to it. So it's easy to see why people think like the NHS is falling apart and it will never look the same again. And is there something behind this? The Conservative Party obviously is a party of a small estate and there's lots of Tory politicians who would like the NHS run in a different way. But I can't actually see that much evidence of a move towards privatisation, really. The Health and Care Act passed last year actually relaxes some of the competition in the health service. So it makes it easier for the NHS not to have to retender contracts, for example. And the proportion of money spent by... NHS commissioners on services that are delivered by private providers has actually remained pretty level over this last decade, even though the reforms brought in 2012 by Andrew Lansley, which are the infamous restructuring, they did bring in more marketisation. The proportion of spending hasn't actually gone up according to people at the King's Fund, which is the sort of quite trusted think tank on health policy. So it doesn't look like it's really moving in that direction. And actually, if you think about what prime ministers are doing, they are giving more money to the health service. The budget hasn't actually been cut during austerity in England. It's, it actually went up. It's just that the pressures on it are so much higher each year, mainly because of social care. And you can see that. George Osborne, he was a cutting chancellor, but he didn't dare touch it. Margaret Thatcher, who sold off so much of the public sort of realm, didn't touch it. And Rishi Sunak and Jeremy Hunt are also putting more money into it. They're just not meeting those pay demands. You can see that there is a fear among even the most conservative of conservatives of being seen to do down what is still a much loved institution. Yeah, I think when people talk about privatising the NHS or selling off the NHS, often they might mean slightly different things and they're not quite clear what they're talking about. So one thing people mean by it is more private providers within the NHS but the care you get as a patient is still free at the point of use and actually there's lots of procedures that you can have I've been for CT scans and things where it's a private provider doing that but I'm you're sent there by your GP and you don't have to pay for anything and that use of private providers is something that obviously like Tony Blair was big on and would you call that private healthcare or not like that's a kind of separate question to what I think people are really worried about which is the idea that the whole idea of universal healthcare would be scrapped in favour of an insurance model like they have in the US, which seems to be one of the most horrendous healthcare systems in the world. And then on top of that debate, you've also got the fact that most of 
Europe has a form of universal healthcare that looks more similar for the patient to the NHS in that it's free at the point of use, but it's not centralised, it's a kind of social insurance system. So you definitely do have Conservatives, I in a previous job I work quite closely with some Tory think tanks, you definitely do have Conservatives who think we should move closer to that model and they talk about things like patient choice and they talk about the centralised NHS ethos trickling down and making it much harder harder to innovate and to change things and to adopt new technology. They don't mean that they want a system like the US where if you don't have health insurance, like you'll turn up at the emergency room and they won't treat you or they will treat you and then give you a $10,000 bill that you can't pay. They don't mean that. They do mean, though, that the kind of centralised structure of the NHS is something that other countries that do have universal health care have chosen not to replicate. And there might be a reason for that. Now, all those debates can come under the umbrella of selling off or privatising the NHS, which is quite unhelpful when you're talking about reform and things that might actually help completely agree, Anoush, that there is no political benefit whatsoever in the Conservatives trying to do this because it is so electorally toxic and even if people are dissatisfied with the service that they're getting they are terrified of the idea that we might end up like america and actually the conservatives that i speak to are really worried about the state of the nhs and as you say keep pumping money into it because they know that if it collapses on their watch they will never recover from that what it basically comes down to is we have an ageing population, we have real problems in social care, the NHS has been picking up the slack for all of that and it doesn't have the funding available to do all of the things that we want it to do with the population that we currently have. So it's not about defunding the NHS, it's about the kind of lack of money and resources and support elsewhere in society that mean that all of those pressures stack up and it's the NHS that has to deal with it. Yeah, and also it's not just the Conservatives who tentatively talk about reform. You know, the most you can get a Tory minister to say is something like, oh, workplaces should maybe have a little bit more responsibility over someone's health care or something like that. And you've got Wes Streeting who is openly saying you can't keep pouring taxpayers' money into a 20th century healthcare model. Yeah, and he has been quite open to the idea of making more use of private sector is I think what you might see and what this perhaps is a symptom of is as we reach this point of crisis as you described Anoush you do get a base for more broad debates about how we deal with the NHS I'm not sure whether that's right or wrong or whether the solutions are right or wrong you might actually just get the impetus for people to start going okay this isn't working as we want it to how are we going to do things differently rather than just reverting to reverting to putting more money into it yeah and actually I do think the problem The main problem here is not one of a sort of conspiracy of trying to defund the NHS to get the public more and more frustrated so that they accept some kind Mm. of American-style model. I think the real, the most sinister thing really here is that there is no actual plan for how you modernise or reform or whatever nice word you want to use for it, what you do with it in the future. It really is just firefighting. And I think that's quite scary because I think whenever politicians say reform the NHS, it just means... We want it to work better, but we don't want to make any spending commitments yeah. right now. And that's that's quite worrying thinking because people are dying because of the state that the health service is in at the moment. And it's worrying that there is such a vacuum there. Also, just throwing out these things like social insurance models. I was speaking to a policy expert about this who has been speaking to government officials about the state of the NHS. And they were making the point that how would you do that? You can't do that in the UK because we don't actually have a private health sector 
So the private health sector doesn't do emergency care. It doesn't do ambulances. You mentioned it, Rachel. You can have scans. You can have your hips or your eyes or your teeth seen mm. too. But it doesn't have that setup. No, it, it shares work, staff it with, the, with NHS. the NHS. Yeah, not against resources it. and yeah. staff are shared with it. So it doesn't exist really. So you can't just neatly say let's solve our problems with the social insurance model. I do think it's a bit like John Elledge's book Conspiracy, which we talked about on this podcast. But he has a book on conspiracy theories, and I'm not saying it's a conspiracy theory that the NHS is falling apart. It very much is. But one of his points is that when something really terrifying has happened or is happening, people sometimes find it comforting to assume that it's deliberate. It's because the people in charge are doing this on purpose because they want X, Y or Z. And that's actually more comforting than no, it's happening by accident because no one knows how to fix it. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anusha Kellyan, and my colleagues, Rachel Cunliffe and Freddie Hayward. We're produced by May Robson, and our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. Thanks so much for listening, and don't forget to leave us a nice review and subscribe, and submit a question to newstatesman.com forward slash youaskus. Trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, Freddie here. I want to tell you about a new way you can support the New Statesman's independent journalism. Every morning I send out Morning Call, our daily newsletter covering everything you need to know about British politics. It's free to sign up, plus for just £3 a month, you'll get a recommended daily piece of ours sent to you in full, plus exclusive polling analysis from Ben Walker, a weekly update from Will Dunn, and our featured piece on Sundays. If you enjoy this podcast, you'll love Morning Call. Head to morningcall.substack.com and subscribe now.